Greetings, friends. This is Ian McKenzie, and I'm delighted to share this conversation with my friend and longtime collaborator, Deus Fortier. In this, we discuss our recent weaving uh, in the offering of a men's gathering, it's a men's immersion, which happened in late July here on Vancouver Island. And we called it MXM, Masculinity, Sex, and Myth. And this was our attempt to bring together these themes in a uh, powerful ritual container, really in service to awakening the lover archetype. Now, uh, many folks are probably aware of the sort of four main mythopoetic men's uh, archetypes, the king, the warrior, magician, and the lover. And uh, what we found and what I found is that, you know, not a lot of space is really given into a deep dive into the archetype of the lover. And uh, that was one of the big reasons why I felt called to, to put this together and join with my friend Deus. Uh, and in this conversation, we unpack uh, our own stories around our interest in these themes, uh, as well as, you know, the power of creating ritual space, uh, the, you know, the ability to heal trauma through relationship, through creating these alchemical containers, uh, the power of transparency, particularly among men to uh, provide spaces for, yeah, for releasing shame and for healing, uh, as well as the importance of connecting through the sensuality of nature, you know, really awakening that um, that sense of the aliveness, this vitality that uh, what we understand is eros, uh, life, the life energy, the vitality of life itself, and how that uh, is something that we can connect with and uh, allow in, and it awakens our own aliveness. And so, yeah, this conversation we explore all these themes as well as the re- the immersion itself. And uh, as well as we announce our upcoming dates for another round of MXM happening in November, also on Vancouver Island, uh, about three hours north of Victoria. You can get the details there in the show notes. But for now, enjoy my conversation with Deus Forte. Welcome, Deus, to the show. Thanks, Ian. It's good to be here with you. Now, this is the second conversation that we've had here at the Mythic Masculine. The first was uh, conducted probably two years ago now. Well, it was on the uh, other side of uh, my first DMT experience. and uh, 5-MEO. 5-MEO, DMT, DMT that's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did an episode, surprisingly, uh, and surprisingly it came off well, at least for me, you know, the one. Uh, after that experience, and uh, people can find that on the Mythic Masculine under... I believe it's called um, a psychedelic guide to healing trauma. And um, th- those of you who maybe have listened to that episode know that Deus and I have been friends for many years. Um, we've wove um, in a number of themes and um, really, you know, have this shared love and, and interest in, yeah, really exploring edges. You know, whether that's culture, um, you know, self constraints or, or, or self limiting, you know, boundaries. Uh, in particular one theme or, or a whole uh, ecosystem of a theme has emerged around Eros. This exploration of Eros as uh, a multifaceted um, kind of, I don't know, uh, threshold or horizon, you know, both personally and collectively. And these intersections of Eros and masculinity seem to have really come to the forefront over the last, in particular, six months or so, I think, for us, I mean, we've been individually, you know, really, you know, journeying and exploring in our own ways. But 
yeah, some somehow the kernel sort of coalesced, and I don't know, maybe you could speak a little to that. But what was the kernel that coalesced that we, we sort of arrived at um, being willing to step into more fully um, an offering together, a collaboration under this theme for men that became MXM. We've called it masculinity, sex, and myth. But yeah, before we get to that actual specificity of that experience, maybe you could speak to yeah, what was do you remember what that kernel of you know, the spark or the click that said, okay, we're going to put something together. I can speak to what it was for me. I'm not sure what the kernel was for you, but I know for me personally, I've been moving towards focusing more on sexuality and arrows for quite some time now. I've been running a self-mastery program for men for about four to five years now. And a lot of the men that I work with, the vast majority of them, actually a surprising number of men, have gone through some sort of sexual trauma and it's a big hang up in their lives. But the focus of that program isn't on sexuality. It's largely about attuning to emotions, learning how to navigate a variety of energies and to um, craft reality in a masterful way. But for me personally, I went through a very challenging experience with sexuality when I was very, very young that um, gave me almost like an obsessive fascination with sexuality and a lot of hangups. There was a lot of trauma that I experienced around sexuality. And so it's been a big part of my own healing and growth consciously for the last 15 years or so. And when I met you about six or seven years ago, one of the things I've really appreciated about our relationship is that we've walked parallel journeys in the exploration of our own healing path um, as individuals, but also how to bring in a uh, collective or community conversation mm. around healthy sexuality and healthy relationships. <clears throat> and so for me personally, having moved into a professional facilitation role for quite a few years now with a bunch of different modalities, I felt like it was important for me to get to a certain level of competence in the territory through my own personal explorations and healing before I could turn around and start offering that. Um, so you and I had spoken about collaborating on this topic a couple of years ago, but it just didn't feel like it was the appropriate time for me personally, because I was diving deep into unwinding and unraveling a lot of those wounds that I've had. And so after seeing, um, you know, working with somatic sexologists and um, some more edgy explorations, couple sessions with my partner and, and really reaching a place of, confidence and excitement in my own sexual healing to be able to turn it turn around and offer that to other people it just felt like the appropriate time it was circling in my awareness for about a year and i think you and i just landed at the right place at the right time together um, and because we'd been walking parallel journeys for so long it just felt right to join forces and craft something with our unique skills. So for me, it was more of a question of timing rather than whether or not I would be offering something in this territory, because I knew it was coming for, you know, half a decade already. Mm. Thanks for that. You know, for me, the, the main thread certainly over the last decade or so that have come really alive, uh, you know, one being on the, uh, in the aftermath of my marriage ending, it was a 10-year relationship, married six years. And when that marriage ended, uh, largely around these 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 complications, really, or these questions around yeah, relationship, eros, sexuality, things like that, 
Um, I was then drawn into or invited to, of course, the, the village of Tamera in Portugal, of which uh, that kicked off an eight-year odyssey to make a film about the community, which in many ways uh, has, it, it was the most fullest example of a whole community that had oriented themselves around the liberation of Eros. And they, I mean, they have a very sophisticated cosmology in a way as well around how they, how they understand this uh, as, as primal life energy. Uh, there's sort of the energy that animates and moves all things rather than restricting it primarily to sexual love as it often is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, affected me so deeply that I, I was really, um, I mean, just fascinated and wanting to even more deeply kind of understand what is, what is the intelligence of Eros? How do we organize societies in a way? How do we uh, support relationships in a way where this vitality can nourish instead of harm as it often does? And like, what are the blind spots in myself even as well that, you know, are, are contributing in many ways to challenges that I have in relationship and, you know, the, the, the deep learnings and the self awareness and self growth. All of these things have been also swimming for me for some time. And, uh, yeah, something around the, the timing of, yeah, both of us, uh, kind of arriving at a certain threshold or maybe a certain, certain, uh, I won't say plateau in a way, but I'm more like, yeah, it's maybe a certain vista, right? Arriving at a certain vista together to be like, Hey, you know, there's something here that I think, uh, wants to come together, uh, in, in this weaving. And that became, as we've said, or as I've said, MXM, masculinity, sex, and myth. Now, the third stream that I did mention yet, of course, was mythology. And um, this for me is is definitely uh, inspired by uh, my own experiences in both the sort of mythopoetic men's work scene, of which I've spoken to at length within this podcast, um, where they really put forth a, a certain groundwork of understanding masculinity uh, through an archetypal, through a mythic lens. And uh, those who are familiar with, of course, the work of um, Douglas Gillette and Robert Moore, uh, the book King War, Magician Lover, as it's known, uh, as well as the book Iron John, uh, which was written, of course, by, or at least the version that is sort of made famous within the men's movement uh, by Robert Bly. And uh, these influences too, I mean, they they have a big sort of sway on the sort of um, substructure of a lot of at least archetypal men's work that happens uh, these days. And so bringing together these ingredients within a single container over in this case, a three day weekend was a very exciting proposition uh, for I mean, for myself and for uh, you and certainly for the men that uh, thankfully said yes to joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious then if you could uh, speak a little bit as to how we approached the constructing the container like what was it that we were you know attempting to guide the men through uh, at least maybe initially and then maybe after we could talk about how it actually played out mm-hmm. it's tricky to encapsulate because there's a lot of moving pieces but um one of the reasons why i was excited to collaborate with you in the first place is that i feel like we have um a lot of complementary skills like my background is in Kriya Yoga philosophy. Um, I've been heavily influenced by indigenous traditions, specifically through the Blackfoot people down in Southern Alberta and um, shamanic practices, working with different psychedelics in ceremonial ritual way. And um, a lot of training and practice in psychotherapeutic 
healing modalities, body-centered psychotherapeutic modalities, breath work and, and coaching and, and others. And so coming in as a trauma-informed facilitator with a lot of different tools in my toolkit, I haven't really focused heavily on the mythopoetic or archetypal spaces, even though I've really related to and resonated with a lot of those spaces. I feel that you, Ian, as a storyteller, someone who's really steeped in community building and culture and approaching myth as a framework for greater self-awareness and deeper connection with aspects of ourselves and aspects and others that can bring us closer together was a really, really good fit. So a lot of the offerings that I put on are approached in a ceremonial fashion, recognizing that we're stepping into a container with a definitive beginning and a definitive end. And everything that happens within that period of time in that sacred container that we're invoking um, is happening for a reason. There's a certain kind of magic that happens when you step into that field where everyone's coming in with a clear intention and we have a point of focus that we're going to be exploring and all the different personalities and constitutions and orientations that come together in that shared space. We offer these really sacred, sometimes challenging mirrors and reflections for each other that opens up a lot of healing potential. If we can approach it with, um, uh, a framework for all of these overlapping forces, <clears throat> because there is, different layers of healing that happens in a space like this. There is psychotherapeutic processing that happens because we'll inevitably be confronted by trauma, the unprocessed experiences that we've gone in the past. And so to have an understanding of what is required within the nervous system and also in a relational field to lead to healthy resolution of that is really, really important. And then to have the framework of going into a ritual space <clears throat> It's also really important because we're invoking powerful energies, many of which extend beyond the territory of our own personal understanding. And yet we're in a harmonious relationship with, and then to bring in the storytelling elements, to be able to properly explain and explore the archetypes, and then to weave in different practices that help men to de-armor and come into right relationship with each other in practical, tangible ways. All of those are necessary elements to come out of the experience with a long lasting positive impact. And so even though I don't have a huge background in the archetypal framework, I've, I've personally been hugely transformed by the exploration of archetypes and how they show up within me and within the life that I'm moving through. And a part of my desire to collaborate with you is to actually learn how you present those key pieces into a ritual space like this. So I found that the way that you and I wove together our different strengths really created this robust and colorful and textured experience that covered a lot of different bases that just wouldn't have been possible if either of us did the offering on our own. Oh, I love that framework. And just saying that the, yeah, the, the ingredients you bring as well, that I was so appreciative that you could, uh, yeah, really support that, the, the ritual space. And, you know, as I'm even reflecting on, like, how would I translate this understanding of ritual space, right? That, you know, somebody's asking me, they're like, what does that even mean to, to enter a ritual space? And for me, it, it's a sort of, yeah, it's crafting a specific container, but also a kind of cooking pot, right? It's crafting a particular kind of alchemical intensity of within an experience mm -hmm. where, like you said, some kind of transformation can happen. Oftentimes when we don't have clear entry and exits from ritual space, things can get you know, kind of muddy and, and, uh, 
blurry and just um, they don't have often the same focused necessary intensity. Uh, and in fact, can I mean it can even cause more harm uh, than mm. than the the intention. So, creating a, a ritual space is vital. And then in terms of the uh, or the archetypal frameworks, you know, again, just to go over some foundational concepts for for folks that maybe somewhat do. But uh, one way to understand archetypes are they're, they're sort of patterns from the collective unconscious. And so these, these patterns, we then apply recognizable um, sort of uh, cloaks in some ways or like recognizable language that um, certainly most uh, come from lineage of Carl Jung, of course, who sort of coined a lot of these terms initially, collective unconscious, synchronicity, archetype, um, as one who, who sort of recognized that these patterns seem to keep showing up, right? These, these patterns have this kind of sort of transhuman uh, origin in a way that humans participate in, but, but they're sort of from a vaster uh, terrain. Now, as far as uh, men's work and masculinity, they were codified in a way, at least as a sort of, you know, a map is not the territory, but a map can still be helpful with uh, four generally the, the core masculine archetypes, king, warrior, magician, lover, and, uh, you know, in the men's work that I've been done, particularly through works like, or groups like Mankind Project, uh, a bit of time with Sacred Sons, what I found was, you know, warrior, uh, king, you know, these types of even magician, like th- that, that can get a lot of room within these types of uh, containers. And it's They're the very lover. Attractive. Right? <laughs> They're very attractive. The very attractive. I mean, the warrior, you know, big energy. King, you know, everybody wants to be. But the sense of the lover actually is uh, is generally not as it doesn't get as much room. Um, now that being said, others who are drawn to this kind of work, personal work, you know, they might be uh, have stepped into you know, fields like tantra, right? Uh, so there's a lot of like neo tantric offerings that also aim to sort of uh, you know speak to certain like techniques uh, like semen retention and you know all this stuff that can be really valuable for sure, absolutely for sure, it can be valuable and. Yet there's like something else that we were trying to invoke, which, um, you know, is even hard to even put into words now, but that uh, sort of invited a kind of the way that I began to speak about it, which came online really more so through the experience, less so was I fully aware of it coming into it, but it was awakening the lover archetype, that, that there was something within the experiences that, or the experience that we had that, that to me seemed the surest um, sense of, of what we were invoking. Like, how does, how does the lover inform and enliven and awaken, uh, within a man, his own capacity for just for aliveness itself, right? For, for a kind of sensual aliveness with the world itself and a kind of core vitality that, that seemed to be, uh, at least for me, it can, a kind of reoccurring inquiry that we brought into the space, especially even around the foundational question of what is Eros, right? Like that also became this mantra, of course, that emerged even, you know, within the first uh, session uh, that became in in some ways like a Zen koan as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can remember the exact phrase, but something that came up during the retreat that um, really impacted me as you were describing the lover and, and reading an excerpt from that book that the lover, the energy of the lover is the unifying force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Connects yeah. Or binds all the other archetypes. Do you yeah. remember what that was? Exactly. Yeah. This is from uh, the Saint, yeah, King War Magician Lover, but they, they put forth that without the lover, those other archetypes are in some ways they can remain 
<clears throat> like achieved and functional in a way, but cold and distant. That it's actually the lover that is the the sort of binding force um, that invites relationship in, you know, true sort of sensual relationship with the other archetypes uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, having stayed connected with the men who came to the first MXM retreat, they've shared a lot of really beautiful things on our follow-up conversations. And one of the things that really struck me on our last call, one of the um, participants was saying how they feel liberated from trying to fit in a very narrow box of what um, masculinity is supposed to look like. And now they feel free to actually connect to who they are in relationship to their masculine energy without trying to fit a certain personality type. And I see this a lot online, you know, in the era of David Data and seeing men's coaches pop up all over the place. And a lot of them are about, this is what a man is, and this is what a man is not, or this is what masculinity is, this is what it's not. And a lot of them are trying to promote a really dominant way of moving through the world and being in relationship with the feminine. And that can certainly be um, helpful, increasing polarized charge and sexual attraction and um, various roles and responsibilities that could be practical in relationship. But I find a lot of the time, people who present those frameworks are really imbalanced in their, in their integration of these different archetypes. If we want to frame it like that, like they don't, they don't have a healthy sense of strength and power within the more receptive and responsive qualities that exist inside of them. And in some way that kind of disconnects them from right relationship with the rest of life, which is a constant loving exchange. And this became a part of the retreat of learning how to find a erotic connection with life as a whole. And how do you start welcoming that in and responding in right relationship with the natural world and with other men? So rather than trying to posture or become the dominant or the alpha within a shared space, how do we learn to open, to de-armor, and to come into solidarity with our brothers and to make room for all of the different parts that have to show up at some point in order to integrate all the fragmented parts of self and come into right relationship with ourselves and with others. And the lover is the archetypal force that accomplishes that because it's coming into a loving, intimate connection with everything that is that it's in contact with. And then this kind of spirals around that question that we never definitively answered, but just kept posing it as a constant inquiry of what is Eros? Like, how can we open even more to the multifaceted experience and expression of Eros, however it is that it wants to show up rather than trying to control it or pigeonhole it into one particular expression or um, way of demonstrating itself or experiencing it, you know? And this ties into our relationship to sexuality you know, if people are approaching sex with a very narrow-minded view of, you know, following certain scripts or aiming for um, orgasm or anything or dominating the, the feminine or whatever, you know, there's, there's a lot of patterns that we can fall into when we're approaching the sexual experience. And what happens when we start to strip those things away and approach a sexual encounter as, say, a healing experience or a ritual experience or a transformational experience? And or a way of exploring peak arousal rather than aiming for a climactic moment or even the subtle pleasure of sensation 
or the more dynamic experience of dominant submissive role play. You know, there's a whole territory that opens up if we can just strip away this narrow minded view that we have on who we're supposed to be as men and how we're expected to show up in a masculine place that just opens up when we explore the the lover archetype. And that was revealed, as you were saying, as the retreat progressed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm recalling uh, on the lead up actually to this gathering this weekend, um, I went and offered um, four nights, four, four different nights of uh, this, the same approach in a talk, which I dubbed Stealing the Key, which is based on, of course, this motif from uh, Robert Bly's Iron John, where the young prince, you know, he encounters the wild man and, um, you know, there's much more to the story, but essentially his golden ball rolls into the cage of the wild man who snatches it up. And the boy is wanting the ball back. Of course, he says, you know, can I have it back? And the wild man says, well, you, you have to let me out. And of course, the key to let out the wild man is under this mother's pillow, is under the queen's pillow. And so that motif of stealing the key, which, you know, Bly talks a lot, a fair amount in the book itself, I, I've spent the last few years, really five years, diving into that very um, interface or that that paradox or that microcosm of that tension point that a lot of men face around, you know, what are the initial imprints that they experience around their sexual being, around their sexuality, their, this, this primal connection to Eros. And for a lot of men, myself included, and again, I don't want to Again, it's very important. I mean, Bly was blamed a lot of the time when the book came out of for blaming mothers. He kept feeling, oh, here's Bly blaming mothers for you know not not showing up how they should have for their sons, for example. That's not what I'm saying here. But oftentimes we we experience a kind of overt uh, or covert a sense of shame around our sexuality because that there is a inability for the mother who hasn't gone through her own you know initiatory. Uh, integration of her own sexuality, her own eroticism. Women rarely have that kind of experience in this culture. That they end up uh, sort of either distancing themselves from the young boys, you know, growing eroticism, uh, or they, uh, you know, shame it because they actually, you know, their own discomfort with it is is, is just too much. Mm-hmm. And so this this kind of heartbreaking paradox emerges for a lot of young men, which is they have to choose in a way between keeping their mother's love. Uh, or embracing their erotic being, right? Because it doesn't seem like both both don't seem possible within that framework, right? And that's the kind of the heartbreaking outcome that a lot of men must face um, because losing the mother's love is, you know, that's, that's death itself. And, and so it's, there's this sense of, okay, well, I'm going to put the, the, the my erotic self away. You know, I'm going to be good. You know, I'm going to uh, not be the wild man, you know, as, as it comes across mm-hmm. in, in Bly's book. So what happens is, of course, then a lot of men wonder, you know, as they grow older and, and don't have rites of passage into adulthood either, and they have these um, kind of, uh, you know, you know like in, internalized shame uh, around their own sexuality and their own, and their own vitality, their own potency. Uh, and not only that, often it still gets funneled into the only source of that to, is to come from women, right? Or the only access mm-hmm. to that kind of eroticism. And we're mm-hmm. talking about heterosexual men here. In this example, that the the source becomes women alone, and you know what does that look like? Kind of multiplied culturally over generations, uh, it looks like me too. There's in the the collective kind of response from the feminine saying, you know, stop stop uh, exploiting us as the source, the only source 
mm-hmm. of the feminine. And so uh, mm-hmm. I think rightly so, a lot of men's work, uh, particularly even this mythopoetic wave that really occurred after the second wave feminism was a response in the same way to the women uprising and saying, you know, no more, that there was this, okay, what are the men going to do about it? And their response in a way at the time was to really do this kind of work. Uh, and now we're, we're in, a, in another wave now, it seems to be, with the resurgence of the archetypal, the mythological uh, aspects of masculinity and, and integration and uh, reclamation. And so it's no surprise, again, that that's in the wake of a big collective moment like Me Too, which was essentially um, focusing on the shadow of the kind of collective masculine and, and this predation on women as the source of the feminine. And so a big piece of the immersion that we did I think was also trying to open up this possibility of access, right? Jung called it the mm-hmm. anima, right? The, 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 the source of the feminine that animates a man's life to open that channel up um, as vital to offer access to that kind of source, that enlivening source that doesn't rely on others, particularly women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. As we were going through the retreat, a lot of the men started using the phrase, the forbidden topic, mm-hmm. exploring the forbidden topic of Eros and sexuality. And when you were talking about, you know, that choice point where we need to choose between the mother's love and exploring our eroticism or sense pleasure or sexuality, however you want to phrase it. The interesting thing about that for me is that our fascination with sexuality and eros and eroticism, intimate contact, it doesn't just disappear. It's one of the strongest urges that we carry inside of us. So it doesn't just go away, but it gets relegated into the shadow, you know, and it's kind of buffered by this territory of shame so that we have to go into hidden places to explore those fantasies, those desires, those urges. So there's pornography, there's predation, there's, um, you know, all sorts of shadow behavior that shows up. And, you know, the feminine has felt that because it's real, because there hasn't been a healthy avenue of exploration for a lot of men due to the wounding that they've incurred in some way by the feminine. So it's this cycle of wounding that starts happening by shutting down, fragmenting the self And then because certain parts of me, I'm not allowed to explore because they'll be punished or shamed or ridiculed or ostracized or whatever. Then I have to hide those parts of myself and try to pretend like I'm a good boy, that I'm one of the good ones. I'm not going to do that to you. And then we start playing all these manipulative games, you know, and we start hunting and trying to find shadow expressions for those desires. And so a big part of this work for me has been first identifying what those fantasy scenarios are. And how interestingly, those those things that I'm most drawn to sexually and erotically are directly connected to my primary wounding in that territory. You know, those are the things that carry some of the strongest erotic charge for me. So an example could be like guilt or shame that shows up as the naughtiness factor, doing something you're not supposed to do with someone you're not supposed to do it with in a place you're not supposed to do it. Like in the right circumstances, that's really hot. You know, it's a huge point of arousal, but in the wrong circumstances, that can be really damaging. You know, it can, it can re-traumatize or it can create new trauma if it's acted out in an unhealthy way. But by exploring the territory and first just acknowledging these things exist, 
that in itself is life-changing for a lot of men, especially to do it together, to just put all the cards on the table and say, hey, this, this is how I feel. This is what I want. This is what I'm drawn to. And to come into solidarity with other men and just admit that is a healing experience in itself because you're bringing the shadow into the light and making it known. And only once it's brought out and we can actually look at it and talk talk about it together with truth, trust, and transparency, can we start developing a healthy relationship with that energy that yearns for expression? You know, it's never going to go away. And so we have to figure out how to be in right relationship to it. And unfortunately, that a lot of spaces don't exist in our world where men can go and explore these things. And I think a part of that is because men are afraid to actually go into those spaces to admit to a lot of the things that they've been carrying because it's surrounded by so much shame and guilt. Mm. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to come together as a group to process some of this stuff, mm. because the pattern has been to do it alone in secret, in shadow, and it just doesn't resolve in that place because the wounding happened in relationships. So the healing has to come through relationship. Mm. I'm also reminded of, I think, like, I think of an example where private conversation like this or the, around this topic would happen. And typically, it, you know, the cliches are like in the locker room, right? Or, you know, with the guys or something where they, you know, there might be talk around sex, but oftentimes it seems it's uh, flavored with a kind of bravado, right? A kind of misogynistic bravado. And my sense too is, I wonder again, how many men, even in those, that kind of circumstance, you know, they might play along if somebody's doing that, like one of the men or two, you know, kind of the men are kind of offering that in the, into this space, like any kind of like, ha ha, yeah, you know, and kind of get drawn up in that. But I wonder how many would actually want, I mean, not, I wonder, I, I think a lot of men actually want a space of actual transparency, actual um, ability to to actually share deeply like what's going on right around these realms of sexuality and relationship and to have questions and even to express projections or express anger in a way that they won't be judged for it as a way to like properly move the the energy behind it and then to actually get to insight right and actually get to revelation because i think without the spaces to actually be be that transparent and to like own what's actually going on below the surface I don't think any real change is impossible if, if you don't have that as the first step. And so I think, yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. to to be able to open that up in a ritual container, again, as an alchemical cooking pot, is so vital. Now, another ingredient we offered into the space was the use of an, use of an entheogen as well. And mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to hear your take as well on how you feel that enhances uh, the capacity to go into these spaces. Uh, in, in that can be really difficult, actually, and can often touch, you know, these pain points and of deep shame or even create reactivity, right? Often, uh, unless there's, mm -hmm. there's some support like that. Yeah. And maybe I'll just clarify by saying we're not looking to avoid reactivity. You know, reactivity can actually be a really helpful doorway to mm -hmm. healing and resolution. And I think this is a big part of ritual where we're going into a shared space with the recognition that, you know, we're potentially moving into dangerous territory but we're doing it with intention and we're doing it with safety and support. And I was just talking to my partner about this the other day of when we're in a space where we have a sense of trust and safety, we can start moving into things that would normally feel unsafe. I call this intentional intensity. So going into territory that in the um, improper circumstances could actually be a general threat, a genuine threat to the system. 
but we're approaching it, recognizing that this is a space where we can actually breathe some life into that thing and explore it and, and to work with it. So we're not looking to avoid triggers or reactivities or sensitivities, but one of the unique qualities of empathogens is that it softens the fear response. So there's, there's something called the window of tolerance in regards to how the nervous system handles charge. You know, and so there's, there's a certain threshold that we cross where we start getting activated, where the system's like, this is potentially threatening, but we're still able to navigate it. We're still able to function, but there's a certain level of intensity that once you cross it, the system starts shutting down in order to protect itself. You go into a freeze or a fawn response and, uh, you're not functioning anymore. The system's overwhelmed and it starts to shut down to protect itself. And you can't really resolve the charge at that point, you have to reestablish safety so it can come back into relaxation again. But that window of tolerance is, that's where all the gold is. You're going beyond what's comfortable, but you're not going so far that you become overwhelmed. And so in pathogens, they, they soften the amygdala response, which is fear, guilt, and shame. And so we can go into territory that might be holding an extremely high charge, but it softens that response. You still might be feeling an activation. There's still a lot of vulnerability or fear or whatever, but there's a little bit more spaciousness so that you can look at it and you can be with it with more love and compassion. And it also creates a, a much deeper sense of intimacy, love and connection and desire for connection within self and towards others that makes you much more receptive and available to compassionate connection with other people. So you become deeply interested in and caring for other people when they're going into something that could be vulnerable or scary. And you become much more um, not only available for, but interested in self-disclosure, sharing those things that were previously hidden from a desire to connect more deeply with self and with other. So it just opens up the whole territory and it softens it so that we can work with things that might have previously been overwhelming in a way that actually leads to deeper connection and resolution. So it's very, very helpful for going into these spaces because almost everybody, I, I barely know anyone who doesn't carry some degree of sensitivity. When you start talking about sexuality, you know, and going into some of the edgier territory that we explore in a retreat such as this, it takes a lot of courage to go into the, these spaces in the best of times, you know? So working with an empathogen just as a way to open up the territory can be really, really helpful to access some of the spaces that otherwise we couldn't get to. Mm. Beautiful. And I want to speak to the, what I feel too is like an essential reclamation that, that happens. And certainly it, I think that's been the case for me that there's this sense of like an essential goodness to my sexuality, right? Like as a man, like that in itself is, is revelatory um, in a way because it, it sort of begins again, the grounds of which to then uh, bring right consciousness um, uh, kind of intentionality in relationship um, and, and, you know, self-knowledge and all this stuff, but it, it, like it has to start from an essential goodness, I believe. And so part of, part of what the, I think benefit of something like this, where we can kind of like recultivate the terrain, this, this initial terrain of essential goodness uh, of masculine sexuality and vitality um, is it then provides the possibility of, I think, yeah, like a, um, a new kind of cultural lens. And I say culture in the sense of even as a, like a personal uh 
self-awareness around this as well, like to, to move from that place, right? Rather than, I think a lot of men feel that they, they kind of live in a compensatory fashion, right? It's like, particularly white men, right? It's like, you you know, we're the absolute worst these days, right? Like it's this, if you, you know, you looked up the worst, it's like, okay, you're yeah, the worst. You're not even allowed to exist <laughs> without being evil. <laughs> and again, I understand there's a vast legacy, of course, of misuse of power and all this stuff. So I'm not making light of that. But all I'll say is that particularly younger men too, I find really struggle with this, right? With this, this sense of like, wow, I just, um, I, there's nothing good I can do. Right. And not only that, you know, my, my sexuality needs to be kind of kept under wraps, uh, or sort of it's inherently dangerous. And so, you know, I gotta, gotta keep a lid on it. And, um, it kind of robs, uh, a, a pathway to, to real purpose, to a real sense of purpose and vitality that is in service to the times that are asking us to show up, right. With more fullness to show up with the open-heartedness and the sensual aliveness of the lover, I think is vital to engage with this, you know, growing calamity of the times that, um, Mm. that ability to appreciate beauty, to make beauty, right. To experience beauty is, is vital. I think in the, yeah, to showing up fully, you know, no matter, you know, what's coming. Mm -hmm. And to acknowledge and celebrate the effect of beauty, Mm. you know, to open up and allow yourself to be affected by that beauty and to express appreciation for it without demonizing those responses or the desire to move towards that which is beautiful without needing to claim or own or possess that source of eros that is invoked within you. Mm. You shared something beautiful too in the past, uh, I think to me directly, but maybe to the men, but there, I'd love for maybe to speak it here as just the experience you had with your partner in the sense of the a function or maybe a primary function of the feminine. And we don't necessarily mean women, but a primary function of the feminine as as stirring, as like as stirring forth an aliveness to then, you know, at least in within your partnership, that was very kind of somatically, erotically pleasing, uh, like to to kind mm-hmm. of recognize a, a bit of this interplay, you know, this dance. And I'd just love for you to speak a bit to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's important to understand that using the term masculine and feminine, I'm talking about universal energies that are that exist within every being, actually every particle of creation. This interplay, this dynamic interplay of masculine and feminine is like the positive and negative poles. It's the play of duality that gives rise to all of material creation and everything beyond material creation. Consciousness itself is a dynamic interplay of these forces. So I'm speaking to universal forces, but within that, as their archetypal forces that exist within every part and particle, we have the ability to tune into and embody and to live from a archetypal force in different proportions, you know? So if I'm stepping into a masculine energy, it's going to present itself differently than when I'm in a feminine energy. And it's not a hierarchical relationship, neither is better or worse than, they just have different ways of expressing and they have different functions within the the realm of creation and within the realm of relationship with others. So what I'm understanding in my relationship with my partner, who I've also been walking parallel on the, this path of, of healing, of sexual healing, and going into a lot of really edgy, but really, really beautiful, fruitful, juicy, pleasurable territory with each other that really pushes both of our edges. An insight that I had is that being in a male body, I 
have a vessel that is very well equipped to embody and express the masculine archetypal force, because that is what this this vessel is um, designed to express more fully. And so the feminine is energy itself. And when I'm in contact with the feminine force, be that out in nature or with my partner, I start to become aroused. It starts to invoke pleasurable life force within me that seeks some kind of movement. It invokes creative life force within me. And in regards to sexual energy, if I am, if I have a very low threshold, a very low capacity for holding that charge, then I'm going to seek to discharge it in some way so that I can come back to a state where I can function, you know? And so in myself, I've noticed that there's certain number of days that I can comfortably go without ejaculating, for example. And that number of days is lessened if I'm continuously aroused for multiple days and that energy is building. It's like, okay, I'm at a threshold now. I need to do something with this because it's driving me crazy. I'm sure every, every guy can relate to this in some way. And I can also learn to expand my threshold for being with that energy so I don't need to discharge it. And that actually gives me access to a lot more life force. So tying this into an actual sexual encounter with my partner, the more turned on I am by my partner, especially when she's fully inhabiting her feminine beauty and essence, and it's just like uh, creating this, this really strong hunger, and there's like a penetrating energy that wants to be expressed, but it's also extremely exciting. If I don't know how to circulate and regulate and manage that energy, then I can very quickly, you know, cross that threshold and then all that energy is discharged. So the feminine in their expression, part of the function of the feminine is to invoke aroused energy within the masculine. And then the masculine wants to penetrate and enter or express that energy back towards the feminine. They actually channel that life force back into the feminine as the object of arousal, which then enhances the feminine's experience and it cycles back to the masculine. So the feminine is, part of the function of the feminine is to arouse the masculine so that they have more life force. And then it's the masculine's responsibility to learn how to increase the capacity or the threshold to hold and circulate and guide and direct that energy so that you can be with more and more and more energy and ultimately direct it back into the feminine in a positive way to create um, a pleasure feedback loop. You know, and this isn't limited just to sexual encounters. This is also connected to the way of moving in and through the world and allowing yourself to be touched by, like what I was saying before, to be affected by beauty and to allow yourself to feel the attractive pull of aroused energy, but then renegotiating your relationship to how you respond to that energy so that it doesn't need to claim or dominate or, you know, control the experience, but offering it back to life in a service-oriented way that enhances life. Mm. Beautiful. I love that uh, pleasure-oriented feedback loop, I think is what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can uh, I can really see that um, in action. And, you know, I could share a little bit on, on my end of my partnership as well. Like we, we often have this dance of, I would say, yeah, like a like a longing for a longing on behalf of my partner for a kind of, yeah, like an open hearted, um, 
it's like, yeah, a kind of sensate, uh, like her, her capacity to like really feel what I'm feeling. And that sense requires me to also be willing to uh, express what I'm feeling. And I think a lot of men do have a similar challenge of, you know, tapping into actually what is the nuance there, right? And Bly has this line in, in our genre, he says, you know, for a lot of men, when even when they're asked, their partners ask them, like, what are you feeling? And they feel like they're withholding, right? The, the, the partners feel like, oh, you just won't tell me. But a lot of the men will actually search for, you know, within themselves and just, and actually don't feel it. They're, they're actually unsure because that nuance, that texture actually hasn't been developed. And so I think part of the lover and that sensual aliveness also comes to the nuance of the emotional realm, right? The, the capacity to, um, to discern and to allow and how that ends up actually also creating a, a, a kind of intimacy, I would say a kind of sensual intimacy, which, um, again, like my partner is deeply longing for when we can get there. And oftentimes that activates again, like a, an arousal state from that level of intimacy. Uh, that can then lead to yeah depths of depths of exploration in the in the sexual realm as well, and so it's um, yeah it's it's wild how multi multi dimensional right again so much of this uh, touches within uh, mm -hmm. our relational landscape um, again relationship to self relationship to partners relationship to the world and um, I, I maybe I'll just kind of find our way you know to the closing of this conversation um, around this sense of that the world itself has a sensual longing to be to be known, right? To be beheld. That um, Martin Shaw, you know, the great storyteller that I've had on the show as well, and we hosted uh, earlier across Canada tour this year. But he says uh, the world seeks to be admired by you, um, mm. and uh, the the practice he often offers to people is he says, "Give give that which you love twelve secret names." Right, give that which you love twelve secret names, and 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 as a practice, to be able to notice enough or to behold enough, right, to actually come to a sense of nuance of of the qualities, right, the qualitative, sensual uh, realms of of every being and every expression of that. Um, another indigenous guest I had on one of my previous conversations as well, he says, you know, just just eat the landscape. Right, like the the world, it wants to be. Maybe, maybe check if the mushrooms are not quite the right, you know, variety. But uh, just, just you know, it wants to be felt that way. Um, and I remember even walking home from the office that day, and uh, there was the cherries. The cherries trees were in blossom, right? And I was like, oh, this is just too good. I was overwhelmed by the beauty of the cherry trees actually down the lane, and the the blossoms that were just cascading, you know, from the branches. And so I did. I was like, oh, what do they taste like? You know, I'd never just done that, eating the cherry blossom off the tree. But it was phenomenal, like the the taste and the you know the feeling that came through and the sensual sense of connection that literally you know I had I was just passed by on a normal day uh, was awoke in me was was awakened and so I feel like yeah this this sense of aliveness is so vital to to being present to the times right and of course the grief of the times but um, yeah I'd love to open up any final space too for you to offer you know what what you can on this piece of the conversation before we close today and maybe share a little of the uh, next dates that are now on the calendar in the months to come. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you actually summarized it quite beautifully, but as you were speaking, I was just reminded of um, this one phrase, you know, maybe I actually saw it in, on somebody's post, but it had something to do with, you know, enough of mother earth 
Mm-hmm. You know, like the earth isn't responsible for tending us as her children. How about we come into relationship with her as lover earth? You know, to be in a loving, sensuous, intimate relationship with this being who offers so much beauty and sensual delight and invokes such life force in us. How do we come into a sensual relationship with the rest of life? And for me, just very briefly, having struggled periodically with points of what I would call depression at different points in my life, normally I go into those states because I'm not feeling connected to the rest of life. Mm. And the times when I've come back to life has been when I've reconnected to an intimate and loving relationship with the natural world around me. You know, and it also makes me much more available to be with my brothers and my sisters, all of humankind, you know, in a much more loving way to be in that intimate relationship. And in order to do that, I, I have to be in a healthy relationship with the flow of Eros in my own being rather than trying to suppress or diminish my own experience of pleasure and joy and excitement for being a part of this life, you know? So mm-hmm. that's a question that I hold is how, how can I step more into a relationship with lover earth rather than mother earth? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, to the listeners as well, what I'll do maybe in the show notes is I'll drop in uh, the episode I did with Charles Eisenstein, actually, where we, uh, we touched on this uh, quite a bit. This is from a few years back, uh, inspired similarly in that sort of ritual uh, threshold, the ritual initiation into that kind of relationship uh, with Earth and the sensual realms. Uh, mm-hmm. And so maybe good time to announce the next dates for the upcoming MXM. This is now number two, are now live. This would be November 17th to 19th, happening uh, in the Comox Valley here on Vancouver Island. And so if uh, you're in this region or you can figure out how to get to this region on Vancouver Island, it's a beautiful place, um, then please join us for this next iteration of MXM. It's going to be amazing. What are you excited about, Deus? You know, I'm I'm excited about the unknown. You know, a big part of how we put together these offerings is that we, we have a general structure but we leave a lot of it open to be modified or inspired by the present moment experience of everyone who's present. And that's probably my favorite part because that's when we really start tapping into the magic of what wants to happen that can occur in a ceremonial and ritualistic space. And that helps me feel connected to life actually is being inspired by the living energy that flows through these sacred spaces. So that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Mm, To the mystery. Ever, ever a courtship with the mystery. Okay. Well, I'm grateful for our conversation here. Thanks for making the time, Dias. And um, to you, the listener. Yeah, thanks for listening. And um, onwards we go. The journey continues. Once again, thanks for listening to this bonus episode of The Mythic Masculine. I very much appreciate your willingness to be a paid subscriber to this podcast, and I will endeavor to continually give bonus excerpts and episodes, uh, podcast surprises to offer my gratitude for your support. It also really helps me if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
or share the public episodes on your social media as well as email your friends. Let them know that you enjoy this podcast. It really helps me a lot to spread the word and bring the right listeners to this experience.